while we're um, setting up and testing Don't our Don't you mice, wish you were podcasting? You um, I do want to thank the Hatbox Theater for creating this incredible space in the world's worst mall. If you're not from Concord, New Hampshire, you might not realize that there is no actual place to shop in this mall. There used to be, but a lot of the stores left, and we're left with a couple of straggler stores, including an inexplicable department store, which if you want a cat sweatshirt, you can totally get one there. Um, Decent frozen yogurt place, uh, the Chico's next door, and this wonderful little venue. So I just really want to thank these guys for having us here, for creating such a beautiful space where people can come and watch podcasters do their thing. It may be the smallest theater in New Hampshire, but it has the biggest parking lot. Absolutely. Kevin? All right. I think we're ready to go. What do you guys think? Are we ready to get this thing done? I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally best-selling books. Today, we're recording our live show at the Hatbox Theater in Concord, New Hampshire. That's right. If you want to go to Dress Barn, all you have to do is walk across the hallway. We're going to be talking about themes in crime fiction and literature as they relate to our summer book club selection that was Laura Lippman's Wild Lake. And we'll hear from a very special guest who knows just a little bit about that book. Plus, we're going to take on some provoking questions posed by our live audience here at the Hatbox. So thanks so much. Provoking? (laughs) Thanks so much to you all for coming out. And please, please feel free to provoke us with your questions. So joining me now to get all that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Rebecca, you are my designated driver, so thanks for bringing me here. (laughs) Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Cheerio. And I understand you brought a guest with you this evening, your fire chief husband. Yes, here. I did. He drove me this evening. Yes, I met him, mustache and all. Yes. And also with us is our resident Doubting Thomas, crime and noir fiction novelist, Toby Ball. It's nice to see you in person, Toby. Yeah, guten tag. <laughs> <laughs> you also brought a guest with you this evening, right? Yep, my wife's back there somewhere. Ah, thanks so much oh, to the spouses who let these two hang out with us once a week. While Kevin's in his underwear, it's really, really generous of you to lend your spouses to this podcast. There is a bed back there if Kevin wants to get comfortable in his underwear. There is. Apparently, can you you set the scene of what the stage looks like? Yeah, for our listeners who aren't with us at the Hatbox, apparently there's a play that's also being staged here, and behind us there is a bed, like a 1970s Archie Bunker chair, a closet with some assorted garments. And some uh, a pair of table lamps. So yeah, apparently there's a play going on. So what play could we do? With all of this stuff. I'm just really upset we don't have a cast for mattress ad. I feel like it would fit really well. Oh, we could just write on a mattress. <laughs> it's time to get some of our podcast business done. We have two Patreon supporters to thank this week. They have made a commitment to supporting Partners in Crime Media at a level where we promised a mention on our show. So thanks very much to Teresa R., who's apparently in the Witness Protection Program. Thanks, Teresa. <laughs> Teresa R., and also to Wendy Martin. Thank you. 
Well, that's a bonus. They even get a, a round of applause. A round of applause. That. That's right. I don't know if there's anyone here who's never listened to my podcast. I know there are two people. Uh, they're sitting in the middle here. Those are my parents, <laughs> Marion and George Peters from Vermont. My mom has asked me many times, how do I watch your podcast? Um, so I'm only going to explain this for their benefit because I know the rest of you guys know what this is all about. Way back in the day when we first started this show, you know, you can make a podcast for free, but we wanted our podcast to sound good. So we spend just a little bit of money to make it sound good, to be able to produce it. We obviously have to buy equipment, pay for hosting fees, so forth. So one of the ways that we monetize the podcast way back in the day was we put an Amazon.com link on our website and asked our listeners to shop using that link. And then we get like a little tiny portion of the sales. And for a few months, that wasn't really working. Like nobody was buying anything. And so Kevin came up with the idea that Toby should read just a few of the items that some of our listeners purchased using that Amazon link and that maybe incentivize more listeners to buy items. So Toby, I understand you brought a list of items with you. I did bring a list. All right. All right. We're ready, Toby. All right. Tranquilly silicone stove counter gap covers white. Two pack. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Uh, it's silicone, so it's good. Yeah, it's a gap cover. Uh, Medicine Mama's Apothecary Sweet Bee Magic All-in-One Healing Skin Cream. <laughs> Sweet Bee Magic. Wow. It's, it's pretty nice. Nickelodeon Toddler Boys Paw Patrol All Paws on Deck Short Sleeve Tea. <laughs> Orthoheal Vionic with Orthoheal Technology Women's Shore Orthotic Slide Black Size Eight. This is that's apparently a handbag. According to Wait, the what? Ortho, <laughs> what? Orthopod. What kind of technology? Oh, uh, it's Orthoheel technology. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, for this one, if if Rebecca's parents can just do the earmuffs. <laughs> uh, lubricant launcher. <laughs> Set of three anal or vaginal personal lube applicator syringes. Red. Red, red. <laughs> Why does it have to launch? It, 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 does, it, com- it comes in several, f- several colors. You were about to this, say this several red. flavors. <laughs> That's a different lubricant why would, you need to, why would you need to launch that? I, I'm not, it's, it's unclear to me. <laughs> Somebody's across the room and you I, just, I, need I, another I drink. did not, I didn't, I didn't Google this to find out any more information. All right, two left. Uh, Tapiris Spork to Go, V8 set. Wait, a spork? Spork. Spork. Nice. Very to go. Right now. Do you want to go to Taco Bell every day? Just get the spork. And then finally, Yo Yo Boko. Premium Magnetic Reward, Responsibility, and Good Behavior Star Chore Chart. Oh, that was Option. <laughs> you bought that? <laughs> wow. Tell okay. me for your husband. Option, you give him option good for two to four children. Tell yeah. me how many items were on the Amazon list that I sent you. There were like 530. So what are the chances that you would choose the one that Laura Bricker about, purchased? About one in 80. Let's hear it for Toby reading his Amazon <laughs> list. <laughs> I'm no mathematician, but I think it's more like one in 
530, right? <laughs> Depends well, on how many seven. items she purchased. Oh, you pick seven. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get down to business. This summer, we asked our listeners to vote on what book should be the subject for our first ever summer book club. And you picked my pick, Laura Lippmann's Wild Lake. It's a crime novel. It's a loose reimagining of the classic book To Kill a Mockingbird. It's the story of Louisa Brandt, the new state's attorney of Howard County, Maryland, taking on her first murder case. And unexpectedly, she finds herself revisiting a childhood incident that changed her view of the world. Before we get to this discussion, I just want to say, for those of you listeners who have not read the book, in order for you to not find this super boring, we're going to keep our conversation on a level that I hope you non-readers will still find interesting. It's going to be general. It's going to be about literature and themes. So before we even get to that, I want to just let you all listen to a special guest who knows a little bit more about this book than we do. I'm Laura Lippman, and I have written 22 books so far, the latest of which is Wild Lake. I don't know if you know this, but we, the four of us, each chose a book that we nominated to be our summer reading club pick, and Wild Lake was mine. I had just listened to it on audiobook. I'm like very new to audiobooks. I used to think it was cheating, but now I'm kind of into it because I don't have a lot of time. Yeah. Your book, by the way, and I said this when I made the recommendation, is so well suited as an audiobook because you have this narrative device of these two voices, the first person narrator plus the third person narrator of the same character. Can you talk about how you made that choice to do that, to have the same character looked at through those two voices? Yeah, I, I love to talk about that. I should say yes, I'd like to talk about that. I don't <laughs> you can know say why. yeah, it's a podcast. Say, yeah. It's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot about structure and point of view. And when I teach writing, I often ask my students to think about why does your book exist? Why is this story out there in any form? Not thinking about as a published novel, but to think about it as almost an organic thing unto itself, a story that had to be told. By whom? For whom? Sometimes it's really easy to look at a novel and answer that question. Sue Grafton's novels are allegedly reports, although, of course, no private eye ever wrote a 300-page report that included information about every time she stopped to eat a sandwich and her <laughs> love life. And Lolita, my all-time favorite novel, is literally a confession. I was very deep in a place where I was thinking a lot about men of their times. Why can our heroes behave as we do today? Why can't they be as progressive as we are? What are we going to do about Thomas Jefferson? What are we going to do about all those Confederate war heroes You know that are monuments in New Orleans where the citizens have voted to take them down? And I thought a lot about the past and the present And I had the kind of duh, obvious realization, we're so smug. In 10 years' time, things that we're saying today and doing today and jokes that we're making are probably going to to seem shocking. The window onto this was opened, I think, by the discussion of transgender rights and the way that language was moving so rapidly in this one part of our culture people were told, no, we don't say transvestite anymore. Like I said it five years ago, we don't say it anymore. So I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, you know, the fact of the matter is we're, we're talking right now, you and I. We're in the present. Five seconds from now, something could happen. We don't know what it is. We have no foresight. We're very actively in the present moment. So it made sense to me that 
the sections about the now of the book, which is 2015, Mm -hmm. the characters in the present tense. I mean, we are privy to what she knows, but she's not privy to anything she doesn't already know. Right. And then there are these other passages written in the first person. Someone's telling the story now, someone who seems to know everything, and that is her other self in the first person. And we find out that there's a reason she's telling the story. There's a literal reason. I work really hard to justify why I'm telling the story the way I'm telling it. I want to be able to have this conversation and say, this is why I did it. Right. But you have to know it's fun, too, right? I mean, it really is. I mean, there's that that shifting of perspective. You know, you have your young protagonist, Lou, looking around at the world around her, her brother worship, sort of seeing her community a certain way. And then you have the grown-up version of Lou in her, you know, high-heeled boots, working in her dad's (laughs) old office. And there's a shifting perspective there that, to me, is really what makes it fun. So, I mean, I just love to hear you admit that you know that it's a little bit fun, because it is. I hope that it is. You know, one of the things about me is that I work in this very popular genre where some of the practitioners are so good at writing these breathlessly suspenseful books. And my books ask people to be patient with me. There's one homicide in this book early on. The dead person is a character that we don't know, and we never really come to know her. It seems pretty small stakes. An arrest is made right away. And I'm hoping that people are going to stick with it because I know I'm not providing bam, 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 bam thrills. The book has drawn a lot of comparisons to Kill a Mockingbird. We have the scrappy young daughter of a stand-up, a well-respected lawyer in town. Of course, he's a prosecutor. And then, you know, there is this transition that happens where she grows up. She ends up, you know, filling his shoes, literally, like in his office, uh, repainting his office, you know, her special shade of white and so forth, and sitting at his (laughs) desk doing the job he used to do, that sort of hero worship of the dad that we see now from her two shifting perspectives. So during the process of you writing this novel, Harper Lee's missing novel, Ghost at a Watchman, was released, right? Was acquired and released <laughs> during by my publisher. Right. And Michael Morrison, who's, whom I've known for a long time and who has been incredibly supportive, was integral to getting that manuscript published. And I thought, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was interesting to find out that Ghost at a Watchman is also something that sort of revisits the hero worship. So that was a coincidence. That was a no. Uh... I I had st- <laughs> I just had started off on my own path. I started writing the book that became Wild Lake because I had started thinking a lot about what we call rape culture. Not crazy about the term, but it's what we have for now. And began thinking a lot about what it meant to believe victims and decided for myself, you know, I'm surprised to realize how much resistance I had to believing most victims, all victims. And for myself, I think I'm going to embrace the policy of believing victims unless they're proven to be lying, which happens very seldom, actually. And then, of course, there was a huge case where it did happen with with UVA and the young woman who was profiled in Rolling Stone. But you know, even in that case, I remember I have a friend who's a journalist, and she said, oh, I knew from the start that her story was false because of this detail and that detail. 
And I thought to myself, I'm not that person anymore. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, one does need to pride oneself on a certain amount of skepticism and cynicism on the ability to be able to see through false stories. That's key to the job. But just as an ordinary citizen now, I, I don't have to be that person anymore. And I kind of feel better when I'm not. And so thinking about that idea, I was like, okay, so what are the ramifications of believing victims? And thinking about what stories in the news over the past 10, 15 years I would think about differently if I adopted this approach. Then I began thinking about To Kill a Mockingbird, which, of course, it's a lie in To Kill a Mockingbird. Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course, because that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. But what if it's not? Mm -hmm. What if it weren't? And I said, well, you know, in the 1930s, it has to be a lie. In the 1930s, the story is that an African-American man, no matter what the evidence, can't get a fair trial. And I was like, well, what if you tell the story in 2015? I'm like, yeah, we've made some progress, enough progress, so that story is not so interesting to me. But what if you tell the story in a time and a place among a certain group of people who think they're doing so well by women and minorities? And then it became really interesting to me. So I was aware that I had been inspired by To Kill a Mockingbird, but I wasn't doing one of those updated reconstructions of a beloved novel. That said, I love To Kill a Mockingbird. It is one of my favorite novels, and I know it really well. So I had an enormous amount of fun loading that book with To Kill a Mockingbird allusions one of which is the very name of the family. And so far, no one has volunteered to me that they picked up on this. <laughs> why uh, why, why don't you explain that to us then? Brant yeah. is <laughs> a bird. Yeah. The fact that I managed to sneak the word shifferobe into the text <laughs> was very important to me. You know, there are little things. There are things like the way they first meet their friend, Mm -hmm. It's very similar to how Dill is first encountered by Scout. And there's a fire at the home of someone named Miss Maud, but with very different context. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I wondered about when I thought about To Kill a Mockingbird is like, wait a minute, Atticus Finch is a widower with a good job in a small town, and he doesn't seem to keep female company? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. How do you explain it? And so I had some fun with that. Walter Cunningham's visit is recast as a Thanksgiving dinner visit by a friend of Lou's from school who's mm -hmm. not from a very well-to-do family, and he makes some disastrous social faux pas. At bringing the open bottle creme of creme de, de menthe, yes. Yeah. What an excellent 70s choice the creme de menthe was, by the way. <laughs> that rang Thank true you. to me. <laughs> I, th I mean, I really did love so much of the period parenting choices that we see uh, <laughs> as a child of the 70s and 80s myself, the sort of benign neglect, the uh, freedom to walk away from school, have nobody know where you are, walk under a highway just so you can beat somebody up on purpose. <laughs> and to me, it's like that's what the 70s was all about, right? That and creme de menthe. You know, it's funny. I do have a lot of nostalgia for my childhood. And I love writing about the 70s and being able to remember a time when kids had that much freedom. My daughter is six, and we live in the city. She has 
so little freedom. Yeah, for better or for worse, though, right? I mean, because as your book illustrates, I mean, Kevin and I wrote a true crime book about the small town we live in now in New Hampshire and a murder that took place here that involved high school kids that was then kept secret by the town for 20 years, sort of sacred and not oh, secret. Wow. And yeah, and in the way of small towns, secret and not secret, you know? And I think that what you're talking about is an environment where we had this perception of safety and freedom. At the same time, the dangers were really more real. And small towns, do you have like a dark layer to them? Does your memory ring true in that way at all? Or is it all good and you're adding these darker elements as you're writing this book? Oh, no, it's definitely not all good. I think a lot of the things I remember, though, that the dark memories that I have of the 70s or 80s are about the legal ways in which young people were preyed on. It happened that you know, as I sat down here and I was waiting for us to start talking today, I glanced at my phone and I don't usually read books on my phone, but I was kind of curious to see which books had loaded on my phone. And and I know Joyce Maynard. I've taught with her down in, at her home in Guatemala. And I got to meet her because her son worked for my husband years ago. And I was rereading the new afterword that she wrote for her memoir at Home in the World. And I am someone who, I'm very troubled by the way J.D. Salinger comported himself you as and a me private both. citizen. Yes, you and me both. <laughs> Good, because she wrote this really powerful essay about how easy it was to convince young women that they had to keep the secrets of more powerful men. And I'm really glad that my daughter's growing up at a time in which, like I said, she's only six. And I think a lot about the power that was seized and the way that young people were exploited at that time, it's its really troubling. Well, Laura Lippman, I cannot thank you enough for talking to me about Wild Lake and about your life as a writer. It's been a real pleasure and a dream of mine actually come true, if, I don't, if you don't mind my I'm, saying so. I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm so gratified it was your, your pick. And, <laughs> and this is fantastic. I'm thrilled to be part of the podcast. That was author Laura Lippman talking with me about her book, Wild Lake. That was just a part of my conversation with Lippman, who, by the way, in addition to being one of my favorite authors, is the wife of Kevin's all-time favorite writer, David Simon. Fun fact, Kevin wanted to sit in on this interview with me and also talk to Laura Lippman, but I wouldn't let him <laughs> because I was terrified he would just ask her questions about her husband, and I thought that would be really embarrassing. So their husband and wife who write books? Uh, he writes TV shows now, for the most part. She but writes they're both, books. their husband and wife who are writers. Yeah. Lame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they have money, so it makes it less lame yeah, than you and I. Uh, I just have to say, this audience was riveted listening to that whole so interview. It's a good interview, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> we are posting the full version of my interview on our website, crimewriterson.com. I recommend giving it a listen. She talks about her work as a journalist, writing her Tess Monahan mystery series, and about her and David Simon's very complicated love affair with the city of Baltimore, especially in light of cases where the justice system is been under scrutiny like Freddie Gray and Adnan Syed. Again, that full interview with Laura Lippman is posted on the episode page of our website at crimewriterson.com. All right, so let's talk about the book. The major newspaper articles about the book really played down the connection between Wild Lake and To Kill a Mockingbird. The Washington Post said there was a, quote, hint of Atticus Finch and Scout in the story. Here's my question. How can you even read the jacket of this book 
and not acknowledge that To Kill a Mockingbird was its inspiration. I, I don't know. It seemed like the big newspaper reviews talked about like how personal this seemed to be for Laura Littman because it took place in a community in which she grew up. Columbia, Maryland, the, Columbia. the 1960s utopian community in yeah. which she spent some of her teenage years. And as yeah. a side note, we have a member of the audience who lived in Columbia. Lives? I, I worked there. You worked there in Columbia. So it's a real place, and it's a real place. <laughs> I, I got gas in Columbia once. You got gas in You mean yeah. gasoline? or I, I got gas for my car, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I don't know how they could... It's, it's almost like they were purposely trying to not mention all the allusions to To Kill a Mockingbird. Do you guys think it has yeah. something to do with the fact that it's Laura Lippman and they want to just write about something else? To be honest, I, I couldn't remember a thing about To Kill a Mockingbird when I was reading slash listening to I'm, it. I'm with you. I think it was like eighth grade, maybe. I, I don't even know. So, so honestly, I just to get ready for this tonight, I went on Wikipedia and got the uh, synopsis of To Kill a Mockingbird <laughs> to see. And then I was like, oh, OK, well, that that makes more sense now. But it was it, it was like by the time. I was listening to the audio book, and I guess it was maybe the third chapter, or, or like the second time we get to the narrative with the the diary. And I'm like, Jesus, this is just like Kill a Mockingbird. You know, you've got the girl and the father who's the, you know, the attorney and the brother, and all of a sudden this weird neighborhood kid comes around and is getting yelled at by the black housekeeper, and I'm like, well, what the heck? At first, I thought Lou, the, the lead character, was having a delusion. She's rewriting her past as the idyllic version of To Kill a Mockingbird. I just kept trying to figure out who Boo Radley was. <laughs> <laughs> there was no... Now, we did hear Laura Lippman talking about her jumping off point. She talks about thinking about, quote, rape culture, um, our cultural shift to believing victims of sexual assault when they claim they've been sexually assaulted. And in To Kill a Mockingbird, she says, although it's necessary for the plot, that book is centered around the story of a rape victim who's a liar. And that over time, for her, that's now problematic. Of course, it's necessary for the book because the book is about how black people can't get justice at that time in the United States. But she saw this as a way to just shift it. What if the rape victim wasn't a liar? Laura, what do you think of the idea of writing a novel to right a literary wrong as times change? That's kind of interesting. I mean, I guess it depends if it's an issue that you are personally really kind of fired up about. You know, in my house, it's common that I fight the man. So there's certain things that I get very fired up about. So I could see this being sort of cathartic. If there was something that you were really upset about, you could kind of rewrite it and hopefully put it in a different light so that people might think about it a little bit differently. So yeah, because, you know, when I was working as a defense investigator, you know, obviously we were always approaching these accounts as with a skeptical eye and looking for holes. And I think Laura Lippman said the same thing, that when she was a reporter, she tended not to believe people, right. um, but that it was very rare for these these reports to actually be false. So, I, you know, I think it depends if there's a particular issue that you personally felt strongly enough about to invest that much time, because that's quite a bit of time. Time. But in the end, you know, I think it definitely did shift in this story in terms of how I was thinking about things. Now, Toby, you're a novelist. Have you ever tried to write like a social wrong in one of your books? I've read, you know, one of your trilogy, that second one I'm starting now. There's a lot of stuff in your books that parallels some of the themes that are kind of going on right now. Are you trying to write some social wrongs? I'm not really trying to write social wrongs as I think write about things that I I find that are interesting that are going on. Wait, wait, drink. Thank, thank, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
And for my parents, um, there is uh, one of our listeners created a Crime Writers on Drinking game. That listener is actually here. Her name's Kelsey. She is the host of the podcast, Deathcast. Everyone give Kelsey a round of applause. Uh, and one of her uh, Crime Writers on Drinking game drink triggers was when Toby says the word interesting, no T's in the word, and... Um, Unfortunately, we're all now stuck with it, and this is one of the reasons why the end of our show is not as clean as the beginning of our show most times. That's true. <laughs> all right. What were you uh, saying, Toby? The thing about writing a novel, at least for me, is that knowing that you're going to be spending a year just thinking a lot about this book you're going to write. So I, it has to be something that I find interesting and something that I find to be like a little yeah, bit drink. of uh, <laughs> fascinating um, or, or, or something that yeah compelling important um, so what I've done in the past is is my books are set at some distance 30s 50s 60s but it's taking you know issues that are going on today and trying to recast them back in a you know a few decades in the past I don't know if it's so much writing wrongs but it's trying to sort of point out things that are going on now but but sort of having the cover of doing it historically kevin what do you think about this idea of her writing this book to shift the what if you know kind of into the present to kill a mockingbird is a book i know you're really familiar with unlike these two usually toby <laughs> and laura are like the intellectuals of the group and kevin and i are like we don't know what you're talking about <laughs> i'm reading um, the bodice rippers this summer <laughs> but this is one instance in where i know you have like a relationship with to kill a mockingbird so my relationship with to kill a mockingbird uh well i think it's a good starting off point like a writer's prompt for her. Right. And, and she says in her, her interview that it's not about doing a retelling or reconstructing. I think that it's actually it's fine to do that. It's whether you do that well. No one has to point out the fact that West Side Story is a great reimagining of Romeo and Juliet because it's done very well. If I told you, and I'm serious about this, that Pamela Anderson's movie barbed wire is a dystopian retelling of Casablanca, which it is. What? That's true. Joe. <laughs> then you're Toby like, says it, it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, that's horrible. It's all in the way it's executed. And, it, you know, again, I have to go back to that. I just can't imagine that, like, the serious reviewers and the, the people who are, like, really supposed to be digging deep in this don't make more about the parallels, the right. allusions to it. I mean, you've got, okay, so Louise, Scout's name, is it, is it Jean Louise? What is Scout's? Jean Louise. Okay, right. Um, this is why it's good to have an audience Jem, Yeah, oh. Jem is, is... Dial a friend. Jem, his name is actually Jeremy Atticus, J-A, the brother is A-J. Right. Again, the bird, a branch is a small type of bird, like uh, like Fitch. I think the opening paragraph is, is telling the story about, well, the time my brother broke his arm which is how To Kill a Mockingbird begins. So to sort of play that off and say and ignore that, and it's, well, it's more about this other idea, I think doesn't do justice to the book. But I, my feeling is if I was writing a review about it, like I feel like that's so there, that if you're trying to write sort of a uh, review that you're trying to put your own sort of imprint or interpretation on, but on I, the novel, like saying, well, it's a lot like it in this ways. I mean, I think... And I think people are just generally like it. So yeah, it wouldn't sure. be like one of those things where you're like, well, she it kind of messes it up in this way or kind of, you know, she fails in this way. Here's how Laura I, Lippman screwed up To Kill a Mockingbird. No, yeah. I think it can stand on its own because, like, I don't remember reading To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, I know I did, but I think this stands on its own. So you don't that need it. You don't need it. 
And and I'm like, oh, there's all these references. Okay, that's great. But it was still a good story just on its own without that connection. I said the the problem that she, you know, thought about was like she says, what do we do about a man of his time? So like a Thomas Jefferson. Oh, but he owned slaves. And about. You know, I'm trying to think of some she other. She was going example. through different time periods, right? Different and pre- when right. would be the appropriate time to tell this story, right? The, the yeah. people that we worship from a certain era, that if we put them in 2016, we would look at them HR, differently. HR would be called on these guys. HR, would, yes, yeah. You know what? I actually want to talk about that in just a second. First, I want to talk about just the storytelling device because I know that I talked about that when I was pitching the book to you guys to be our summer book club pick. Laura Lippman, we heard, you heard me talking with her about it in our interview. The device of the two narrators, which is a very popular device right now in popular fiction. I think Girl on the Train is the most stark example of it because that book is so unbelievably popular and that has the two women narrators, one of whom is you know the one who's like unreliable, one of them who's unreliable for a different reason. This book has the same character, two narrative voices, in case you haven't read it. Uh, there is the first person narrator of Lou basically telling her story from her childhood perspective in the first person and then there's a third person narrator telling Lou's story as an adult. She's taken over her father's job as the state's attorney for the county in Maryland where he had previously been the state's attorney. She's literally filled his shoes. She now has his old job. And it's just a very interesting storytelling device. It takes a little bit to catch up. It's why, to me, the audiobook worked well, because I was trying to figure out what was going on. But Laura, I guess that you didn't enjoy the audiobook experience. Yeah, I had a hard time. So first of all, I, I haven't been a big audiobook person like Rebecca. Um, I have to listen to it at the right time of day. If I listen to it at night, I conk out after like one chapter, and then I wake up and it's still playing, and I have no idea where I am. <laughs> a nice person's telling me a story. So, yeah, so it's good for my insomnia. It works a lot better than Ambien, and you know, I won't have sex and not remember it the next day. So there is that. Um, That's Audible.com's new uh, tagline. (laughs) Try Audible.com where you won't have sex and forget about it. That's on the warning. Have you ever read the warning? On Ambien? Yes. Not on Audible. Not on Audible. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Audible.com. One of our favorite sponsors, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Guess we're cutting that whole like two minute segment. Nope. Leaving it in. Leaving it in. That's called Uh, value added. By the way, I would cut it if Laura's husband was not actually sitting in the audience because I would worry, you know, unless he goes up and talks to me later. We're leaving it in. He's used to how I am. So, um, yeah. So I, I started listening to this this summer. We were up at the lake. I was like, you know what? It just seems like a lot of work to read right now I'm gonna just listen to this and that was good during the day at night not so much but I had a hard time with the the narrator of Lou the younger the voice was just so idealistic and it was almost to me a little bit overdone grading yeah and I was just like oh I can't take this anymore so I actually finished the book and then I started reading it because I felt like I just, you know, the whole time I was listening to it, kind of like, ugh, I can't listen to this voice. But it, it did the, the actual... It was the performance the perfor- that, that took, took you out of the story? Yes. Yeah. Because I felt like the, the actual voice of the little girl, I just had like a different... In my head as I was listening to it, I was having a hard time with that. But the actual device of using both of the narrators worked very well. And when I went back and read it in the actual Kindle format, it was much easier for me to kind of shift back and forth between the two characters. So Toby, what did you think of this dual narration? device i have a few thoughts you can be negative it's okay everyone expects that no well it's not really (laughs) negative but what it ends up doing is you've got these two narratives going on and you know that they're going to connect and so part of the suspense i think is kind of taken out and i don't think that's necessarily what she was after was to have like a super suspenseful thing but the whole time you're reading 
your thought is how is this going to connect with the other narrative? Like, like how is this going to play out in 2015 or whenever the, the time was? So in some ways, I think when you make that decision, you're creating some problems for yourself, which are certainly solvable. I, I do think it was kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, for a guy who reads much, much of the Atlantic, as you read, like you should have more adjectives in your back that's pocket. That's true. <laughs> it's, it's just a, it's a reflux. Um, you know, have, having her voice at two different times, I thought the adult voice was was more effective. I think writing kids is really really hard. She she made it work, and I think you know I admire the fact that she she set up a situation that was more difficult than it needed to be, and it wasn't obvious. You were still sort of wondering what was what was going to happen and trying to figure out exactly how are these storylines going to meld. But you always knew they were going to. Right, right. Now, one of the things that I liked that she said, and Kevin, I'm going to direct this your way because we have this conversation a lot. We write books together. Mm-hmm. I know it's a conversation that we also have in the newsroom where I work. It's a conversation you probably had in television a lot, which is that there has to be a reason why you're doing what you're doing, right? Right. And Laura told me that she approaches everything she writes. Like, I have to be doing this for a specific Reason and this like whole choice of the dual narrators was for a reason. She thinks it paid off. What do you think? Paid off or not? And do you also think that when you're writing, does there have to be a reason for what you're doing? The second part of the question, yeah, there absolutely has to be a reason. Sometimes you write it and it doesn't work. You talked about aesthetic, defending it aesthetically. Yep. And there were a couple of times, you know, I'm thinking of one book where we had sort of a he said, she said, where we had a the evil ex husband and the victim ex wife. And we heard everything bad about the ex-wife. And in the first draft, you go back and then retell a, a lot of the same incidents from the view of the ex-husband. And we gave it to our... You're talking pub- about Legally Dead. Yeah. And I'm talking... Our editor was like, this sucks. Yeah. She didn't say that. But <laughs> we had to go back and rework it because it just didn't work. There's no reason to do it that way. Right. Yeah. I, I did like the two narrators set, although I thought that the first person diary narration was going to be unreliable. That it was going to be something completely different than what the reality was. But it wasn't. Right. It was just her perspective. It was an earnest little girl telling the story. No, she wasn't. She's not a little girl. No, she, she's writing it as an adult, start, looking back. Starts out, though, in the first person. She's looking back, but it is very much the voice of remembering what it felt like to sure. be a little girl. I think Just that's like why, To Kill a Mockingbird. I think that's why that voice was chosen for yeah. that audiobook, because the yeah. voice was of a really earnest, yeah. like, 10-year-old girl who just feels like my brother is awesome. But it was an adult reading that voice, which is why I agree that's with you, it was, yeah. that it was a little bit overly done. Yes. But Kevin, what were you saying before I started mansplaining? I was done. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I have a follow-up question for you because, you know, this story, she says, is a lot about hero worship. You know, I get that a lot. Uh, The little girl worshiping her brother, the grown-up Lou worshiping her dad. She's in a full-grown woman adult, in a full-grown woman a job to which she was elected. She's still asking her dad for advice over the dinner table about how she should do that job. So here's the question about hero worship, and Kevin, I'll bring this to you first. Is it positive because it's aspirational or is it dangerous because heroes can never live up to the legend? You mean in real life or in literature? Both. I think in real life it's difficult because you're right. The person you put on a pedestal is still human and they still have feet of clay. And so that if you see them as something more than they are, they can be somebody that has qualities and attributes that you try to aspire, then... I think that that's okay so long as, you know, you 
you have a good sort of handle on you know where the line is. Like I, Tom Brady. Ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna be walking that back, <laughs> um, but I, I think in literature, it's, it's I think it's good to sort of like get into this conflict where you know the the thing that you think is A is actually B. So I think it's a good it's a good framing device. But Laura, did you think the hero worship was like basically a harbinger that like things weren't as they seemed? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I was just waiting. Like Toby said, I was like, okay, I know this is going to connect at some point and there's going to be a big revelation that I'm waiting for. But re- with regard to the hero worship, I mean, I think for me, it is when does that sort of hero worship begin? Is it something where in this case it began when Lou didn't really understand when she was naive and she was a child and she formed in her mind sort of an idea of what she thought her father was? Or is it when you're an adult and you actually maybe see somebody do something and you develop that feeling when you have much more of a context and much more of an understanding so it's maybe a little bit more realistic? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Who's your hero, Toby? (laughs) Kevin Flynn. Uh, (laughs) Yes, Kevin Flynn. (laughs) No, but Toby, I I do have a question for you. It kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier. You know, uh, Lippman, she told me that unlike most best-selling authors, she doesn't write the rapid-fire suspense, the breathless prose. She asks readers to be a little more patient with her, and you see later how it all fits together. So you can feel free to say something unfair if you want or negative. Unfair. Um, I wouldn't say anything unfair. Do you think this is what readers want? Do you think it works? And do you think it's what readers want? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's clear that a lot of readers do want it. I mean, it, she's a right. I mean, she's a good writer, you know. And I and I mean, I think her what she's aspiring to is a little bit different, and you know, not necessarily better or worse, but somebody like John Grisham or. Dan Brown, who, whose plots move along a lot faster. Um, Dan she, Brown, king of the three-page chapter. Yeah, hey, I've, Toby's I've got, I've got chapters some are pretty short. Chapters, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> no. <laughs> but not on purpose. Go easy. No. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you write an hour and a half, that's how much I can put out at a time. So, there's a hem in that one. <laughs> you know, when you're reading one of her books and you're expecting something that's going to be moving that fast, you're probably going to be disappointed. But I think at this point. You know, Laura Lippman is a, is well enough known that you know you're it's it's more like a novel than a suspense novel, and I, and that's sort of at the end of reading Wild Lake, I kind of took a step back and I was like, you know, this isn't really this is more just kind of a novel novel. It's not really a suspense novel. I guess I've read three of her books, and I think they they all kind of skirt that line of suspense or crime novel, and they they fall on either side of that line a little bit, but they're basically right on that line. I think on whether or not readers want books that are just rapid fire suspense, I, I think it's not the readers you have to worry about. I think it's the publishers. I think it's publishers who think that that's the only kind of suspense novel that people will buy is something that's boom, 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 as opposed to Laura Lippman's novel here that does sort of build and build. Obviously, it's a great book. People are buying it, but it may be hard for maybe the first time author who's coming in with a, a mystery thriller book, and it's not a cliffhanger every other page. Right. 
I don't necessarily think of Laura Lippman as like a suspense writer or some, I mean, because I've read all of the Tess Monahan books. I think of her more as a traditional kind of mystery writer. And it's kind of like reading like Archer Mayer, who's one of my favorite regional mystery writers. And his books are kind of slow and they go along. And Very New England. Yeah. Sue Grafton also. It's like a nice slow build. And then it all ties together. So it's I think it just depends on what sort of reading experience you're going for. And I think there are people that need that instant gratification, which unfortunately is sort of, you know, as look at my child on his iPad all the time time who can't entertain himself without that that's kind of what we're becoming but it's nice to kind of have to have that patience when you're reading a book like that and wait till the end and not read the wikipedia page like i did in the night of to find out what happened at <laughs> yeah. the end yeah <laughs> no i think that that's fair and i'm just curious i'll just go around the table are you a destination person or a journey person uh it depends on the book and TV show, I know we've had the same conversation, right? Yeah. No, I felt I felt a little bit the same way with this one, where I, I think it would have upped the suspense a little if a few of those things that all tied up, because the ending just kept going on and on. I was like, oh, wait, there's more. And it was all really great coda, stuff. Coda, coda, coda. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Toby? Destination or journey? Yeah. If you got to read 300 pages to get to the good part, that's, I mean, I think it's got to be the journey. What about you, Kevin? Destination or journey? Uh, that's tough. I, I think journey. And by destination, you just mean the ending, right? Right, right. Not where you're going, because that is the journey. Yeah, I, but I, I do think that if the journey doesn't take you to a satisfying destination, right. it seems kind of pointless. I always like to say, nobody ever said, hey, that was a really great apple I ate, except for that last bite where I found half a worm. All right, had an audience request. We want to give Wild Lake a letter grade. I'm going to go around the table. Uh, Laura, I'm going to start with you. Uh, B plus. B plus. Why? I, I, well, I think had I read it instead of listening to it on an audiobook, it might have been like an A minus. But I had a hard time with the audiobook. Plus, I kept falling asleep and forgetting where I was in the book, so it got a little disjointed. What about you, Toby? What letter grade do you give Wild Lake? Are we, are we putting this on the final product? You can be honest. <laughs> I, I would say it, it's a solid B. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's of of the three I've read of hers, read slash listened. It's my least favorite. Uh-huh. Um, I, What's your favorite? I uh, know you anywhere, and I can't remember what the other one was. It might have been. Oh, you know, it was after I'm gone. Yeah, yeah, that was a great book. Yeah, so I thought those were both like, if you weren't crazy about Wild Lake, I wouldn't like necessarily give up on her. Don't give up on. I Laura felt Lake. like this was a lot more. You know, it was weird listening because I kept waiting for. I'm like, okay, when does the Laura Lippman part start? And it, it takes quite a while mm-hmm. to get to that. And there's a lot of stuff that just seems like it's from a different author altogether. What about you, Kevin? What grade do you give Wild Lake by Laura Lippman? I'll give it a B plus. Um, I said I did like it. I haven't read as much Laura Lippman as I have David Simon, Shocker. but. <laughs> I should tell you about the time I met David Simon. It no, was, yeah, you should it, not hear about it that. It was in New Orleans. I went to this conference and he was a speaker. Did and the only reason I went was because so I could get to meet David Simon. And he had, he had like a question and answer period. And I got up and I started saying, look, I was a reporter in New Hampshire. And I've covered like a lot of presidential events. And people do the town hall thing and they get up. Instead of asking a question, they just go on and on and make a speech. And having said that... I went on and I, I love said, you, David Simon. Yeah, I basically said that. <laughs> and I think they started to call hotel security because they were a little worried about how much I was gushing over him. But I give it a B plus. I did like all the allusions to To Kill a Mockingbird. And at worst, it's a reimagination of a classic story gone wrong. 
which is still good enough for me. But I do think it's a little more elevated than that. Final question about the book. On Facebook, Laura Lippman said, most of us who read To Kill a Mockingbird do so with a sense of superiority. We feel like we would never be part of a lynch mob. We would never convict an innocent African-American man. We would never be racist. We would never kill a mockingbird. I'm wondering, do you agree with this idea that we read this book with a sense of superiority? Laura? Uh, well, since I don't remember reading it, I'm just going to read the Wikipedia page. I'm just going mi- to no. I didn't even do that much. Toby's way ahead of me there, but I, I mean, I guess you're getting at kind of that mentality of getting sucked up in something before you actually know all the facts and whether. And I, I mean, I'm you know, I get very my poor husband, long suffering Ken. I get very worked up about certain things, and I do sometimes. I don't think I'm a lynch mob, but there's certain things I'll be like, you know, I'm you a one-person so lynch mob not. here. Yeah. One-woman lynch mob, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, there are certain times I'll get like, oh, and I'm so fired up about something, and then afterwards I'm like, yeah, I maybe should have waited till I knew all the information about that. <laughs> what about you, Toby? Do you think that there's this, something to this idea behind the fact that we read certain books, like To Kill a Mockingbird, because of the feeling of superiority that they give us? Uh, I read To Kill a Mockingbird with the sense of obligation, because my <laughs> mom was my English teacher at the oh. time. <laughs> That's a fun uh, fact. What was that the, like? Having my mom as an English teacher? Yeah. That was fine. <laughs> that was fine. No, but I, uh, Were you yeah. homeschooled? <laughs> and, but all she taught you was English? <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no she, she was, she's an English teacher at my, at my high school. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, there are these books. I, I guess Catcher in the Rise uh, is probably another one where it's you're trying to identify with this kid who thinks he's he has the kind of line on who's a phony and who isn't is the same sort of sense of superiority but I think you know in some ways that's that's how you I guess you're trying to sort of establish values or something it's like it doesn't it doesn't mean much if if you're just along with the mob right you know so right. once you set somebody apart and their outlook or their morality or whatever I think this is almost inevitable they have a sense of superiority what do you think Kevin yes people congratulate themselves about how open-minded they are because it's easy to do by reading a book like this. It's not challenging in that same way. It's it's like using a hashtag. And you don't feeling, actually have to be a good person. You don't, right. You don't you actually have to have read the book. You just have to have read the book <laughs> and to really enjoy and like, oh, this was a great writing. You're right. I would, you know, it's easy to take the side of Scout and Atticus, whereas, interestingly enough, we haven't talked about Go Set a Watchman. Which was Harper Lee's, you know, really her first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. And people went apeshit because Atticus Fitch was Surprise, a complete... guys racist. Yeah, so I, I think people do kind of read this. And because it's a great piece of literature and it's something that they've read and it's a cocktail party kind of thing. Yeah, they can say, this is how I feel. And uh, yeah, congratulate ourselves. We've come so much further and we're so much more enlightened these days and that we all have houses with white picket fences and beautiful homes. And because I love having a beautiful home, I downloaded the Havenly app from the iTunes store. Because with Havenly, I can get help with uh, my tough-to-tackle interior design project. Now, is Havenly a new sponsor, Kevin? Havenly is a new sponsor. Nice, nice. Rebecca, this is really your bag. Tell me a little bit about Havenly and why you want why you like this app so much. Well, I like this app so much because basically they make it easy to decorate your home. You get to chat with a professional interior designer for free to get answers to your most pressing design questions like... 
how do I decorate this weird L-shaped yeah, room in my yeah. house? You were just talking about that. I was. We have this. So our house, we used to have like these little tiny rooms. And then when we remodeled and expanded, we took the walls out. But then we were left with this weird L-shaped living room. And I did try to get some free advice out of a local interior designer. I even offered to do his wedding, but um, he doesn't give free advice. So we continue to bring people over and say, what should we do? Because nobody sits in the weird L side. <laughs> so this might help me. I mean, maybe people will actually move around in my house when they come over now. Well, you can chat with a real interior designer to get pressing questions answered, like that weird L-shaped room, and they'll walk you through a four-step design process, and then if you want, you can buy some stuff. Is that how it works? Yeah, so you'll actually work with somebody who will give you some ideas about what you can do with that space, and if you want to take it a step further and perhaps purchase that couch or that great lamp, they'll work with you and get you the stuff that you want. Spoiler alert, I already want to buy the couch. So download the app today at the Apple App Store. Use the code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. That's Havenly. And the promo code is what? CRIME. Crime. Use the code CRIME <laughs> to get 20% off your design. Wait, so this is like a design thing? It is. So you like your your like rooms will look good and everything. Yes. So when you're entertaining people yes. and stuff? Yes. So, but you wouldn't probably want to like have people come over to your nice place. You're like wearing sweatpants or, or some kind of like mesh t-shirt or something. You probably would not want to do that. No. no. Well, I, you know, if that was a problem for you, I might suggest modcloth.com. Oh my God. <laughs> Toby, did you just go into an advertisement? I did, wow. a, I did a transition, which I'm now going to hand off to you. <laughs> <laughs> that has never happened before on this show. Uh, Kevin, Modcloth, a new sponsor, right? Yeah, I know. I told Toby he had to do it, so I don't yeah. know anything about Modcloth. Oh, okay. I, no, no, I I'm only kidding. With that. I know everything about Modcloth. I actually, I actually know most Rebecca. about it. I've actually been a ModCloth shopper for a long time. That's right, you have. ModCloth is a super cool website. They feature a broad range of styles, from the understated to the adventurous, the classic and the contemporary. Lots of really freaking cool vintage-looking dresses, tops, bottoms, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear. My favorite is the home decor section. They have cute little like plates with like foxes and woodland animals on them. They have like a Bluetooth keyboard for your smartphone that looks like a typewriter. They just oh have like my. a lot of cool stuff. It's a stylized experience shopping at ModCloth. They have a free mod stylist service for dedicated sizing. They've got fit tips. Like you ever see somebody like wearing like a really super cool dress at a wedding and you're like, I didn't see that at Macy's. They got it at ModCloth. Like ModCloth is the place to go. This is good. Yeah. This is good. I'm having a big meltdown this week in case, well, you probably all don't know, but I'm turning 40 on Friday. And uh, this is, <laughs> this has been a tough one. This has been a tough, I went back to blonde this summer, something I haven't done since my 20s. So this might be able to make me feel a little bit better about transitioning into my 40s if I looked good. Toby, what, is, what are our listeners Are you to transitioning do? to your 40s? <laughs> I, I'm well transitioned at this point. <laughs> Well, Rebecca, right now you can shop their latest collection and find your new fall favorites. I can. What you do can. I have to do? You have to go to M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H dot com and enter promo code crime, crime. crime <laughs> at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary with ModCloth. Go to ModCloth.com. That's M-O-D-C-O-L-T-H dot com and enter promo code crime. crime. What? Promo code? Crime. 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 <laughs> uh, you get 20 bucks off an order of $100 or more. That was totally nervous. All right, so um, Laura, how do you think Toby did on that ad transition? Well, I was, I was wondering what he was doing. I was like, is Toby getting into your interior design? 
fine. And then all of a sudden, no. out came the ad. I was nice job, Toby. Thank really you. nice job, Kevin. I, what do you I think had no idea. Because I, think I didn't did, get a heads up. I think he did great. We said we wanted to do something special for the audience. Toby and I have been planning this for about six months now. Yeah. <laughs> I could tell. I've been studying Kevin's technique. I could tell. He was just wait. He has just been waiting for mod cloth to actually become a sponsor because he's right. been practicing mod cloth since February 1st. So I should be getting the blouse or whatever. <laughs> so get something, right? You should. I'm thinking like you're, what you're waiting for is like, I don't know, some like European soccer, like obscure <laughs> sport that only you and a few public radio employees watch. That should be our sponsor and then you could do all the ads. Teamhandball.com. Right? Awesome. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I, I think it's time for us to address some audience questions. What do you think, Kevin? What's our first question, Rebecca? The first question that we get at every event that we do is, how did we all get together? So, Kevin, I'm going to let you take this one. Okay, it was, I remember Thanksgiving weekend, and we were driving back from my parents' house to our house, which had no electricity because of a super ice storm. So we left the house that had electricity and heat and drove two hours to come back to ours that had none. And we had been listening to Serial. You were into it, and you got me into Serial, and... We had been talking about, like, oh, wouldn't it be neat if the local public radio station did something around cereal? And I just turned to you and I said, we should do a podcast about cereal. We should put cereal in the name of the podcast. And if we're going to do it, we have to do it this week. And I didn't say anything more. And you went with it. Yeah, but you were the one who also brought these two guys into the fray. Yeah, I, Laura was my first love. idea. My first love. My first target. <laughs> I said it should the be, we, I think now. we came with a crime writers on serial. I think yeah. we came with the name. So, okay, well, we've got to get some crime writers. And so I said, who did I know that would be local and could probably come and get a microphone? Who would request payment? Yeah. <laughs> and it was, that Laura's a land baron and does not need payment. <laughs> and so it was Laura, and I contacted Laura to see if she was interested. And it was Laura who came up with Toby's name. Yeah, because so Kevin and I, so I met Toby first, actually. Way back when, a friend of mine, was when I was writing my book, was like, hey, you should meet this guy, Toby Ball. He's writing a book, too, and you guys can commiserate. And so Toby and I somehow like either befriended on Facebook or email or something. And then Kevin and Toby and this other woman, Cornelia, and I did some book roundtables together. At the library yeah, one time? We, yeah, we did a couple. We did these like true crime versus fictional crime. We did like the, the, the great Southern New Hampshire tour. So we kind of knew each other from that. All right, I'll tell you guys the other backstory to this uh, question is that Serial came out. I was obsessed. You refused to listen. I don't know why, but you did. And then I listened to a couple of other podcasts about Serial, and they were terrible. And I thought, I know how to edit audio. We could do a better one. And then when you had the idea, that's how it all came together. So we have another audience question. Uh, This one, speaking of Serial, is about the Adnan Syed case. I don't know how much we'll be able to answer a specific question, but I think it can kick off an interesting conversation. Somebody in the audience wants to know, what is the scuttlebutt on Thiru, if you know? For those of you who don't know who Thiru is, he is the prosecutor in the for the state of Maryland who has been prosecuting the Adnan Syed case through his appeal. Adnan Syed, of course, is the person at the heart of Serial Season 1. Many people think he's wrongly convicted. And Thiru was the one who took the lead in the PCR post-conviction relief hearings. And many people believe that Thiru had some personal issues with the case that the the prosecution he was represented the state hearing. right and people who is, think Adnan yeah. Syed is innocent just kind of don't like that in general so anyway news broke last week I believe that he no longer works at the works for the state he's no longer prosecuting the case so I don't think any of us know what the scuttlebutt is there hey, I have a theory okay go he's ahead. going to Nancy Grace to be a commentator <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> is Nancy Grace even still on the air? Toby's going to be super excited if that happens. Yeah, I <laughs> I would be super excited. Enthusiasm? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I but it seems like if you were like he was probably catching more crap on social media and Reddit and all that stuff than anybody else who's in a similar position in the country. Well, no, assume. because like, look, Len Kaczynski never went away and people were, ra- and he had a public Facebook page and people were ragging on him and he's still around. I wish right, he but would he resign. at least, he kind of deserves it. Well, one of the things, Theodore has had a sort of a stain on his reputation where he was the victim, I should say he was the target of an investigation by this group called Project Veritas. Now, these are the guys that did like this undercover work where the guy dressed up like a pimp and tried to get Planned oh, Parenthood Jesus. to, yeah. um, uh, you know, say that they would sell fetus parts. James and stuff O'Keefe. Like. Yeah. So they did a investigation on Thiru where they tried to, you know, show that he was a corrupt public servant. And essentially it was a Project Veritas reporter who was a young blonde woman who was flirting with him and got him back to her hotel room. And it certainly looked like, you know, she was leading him on like this was going to be a sexual fling. That never happened. But in the middle of all the flirting, he said something like about how his boss, the attorney general, was going to make a comment about an EPA regulation that the Obama administration was going to announce in a week. That's sexy talk right there. Yeah, super sexy, right? (laughs) How did they not do it right after that? Oh, I think I remember that. Which was like such a minor thing. But they played it up like it was such a, a big deal. Now, whether or not you think... Thero did a good job in the appeal or whether or not your feelings about him like that I think that was kind of a cheap shot I looked at the report and I thought as a journalist this is nothing this is a stupid gotcha thing that isn't really done very well and I kind of felt bad for him I'm waiting for an ad segue I feel like you're leading up I to know. like she was going to steal his identity he needs life, life lock yeah. no, like, I'm no. waiting for that I was there's like, nothing there's nothing like that okay. no Kevin actually knows the scuttlebutt <laughs> um, so I just want to throw it out to you guys does anybody in the audience have a question they want to shout out about the podcast how we make it or anything that we've talked about all right so what's your name so jill is in the audience and her question is and i'm only repeating it in case the audio Mm -hmm. doesn't pick up her question is we're all authors she hasn't read any of our books yet and she's interested in reading our books where should she start kevin i usually answer this for us but i'm gonna let you do it this time she's gonna start somewhere with one of our jill thanks for coming where are you from atlanta atlanta georgia what are you doing here oh my goodness <laughs> you didn't. You didn't come up just to go to dress barn. <laughs> uh, I would say that for Rebecca and I, I think the place you should start probably our best book is Our Little Secret. It's a story about uh, a guy who was murdered in 1986, and it turns out a whole town knew who did it. It was a teenage kid, but nobody told the secret because the victim was uh, an accused child molester, and everybody believed he had it coming. So I think you should try that. Now, if you want to get a Toby Ball book, they happen to be selling them in the back of the room, right? That's right. That's right. That's a nice... So which one should Jill get? You should probably just get the first one. I mean, they're they're in sequence. So the first one's The Vaults. I'm always tempted to say the most recent one because... You like it's it the, the most best? recent one. Yeah. Well, it's that, but... Um, I love The Vaults. Loved yeah. it. Anyway, so yeah, The Vaults. So my husband only reads like nonfiction and he just started reading Toby's book, The Vaults. And he was he was saying, 
what is the mind that came up with this? Right. Because he's it's a great said, book. It's Toby. It's Toby. I love it. So for me, I, only, I have one true crime book, Lie After Lie. And if you want to um, delve into my personal life, you can read How Do You Milk a Moose Anyway? How Do You Milk a Moose? <laughs> because what? that's a real thing. You have a memoir? No, it's, it's, I have like a collection. I write columns. I write like personal columns for the paper. Right. And then I got put on moratorium because my poor husband would go to the fire station and they would say, hey, Ken, what did you do this weekend? And they'd be like, oh, no, wait, let me look at the newspaper. Oh. And so I, I got put on hold for a little while with that. But you can read about when I rented an excavator and drove it into a tree, if you'd like to read about that. So Jill is, is from Georgia. Is there anybody in the audience who's from outside of New England? Right there, down in the second row. Where are you from? I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland. Wow. Nice. I'm sorry, remind me of your name again. Nancy. We are obviously all very appreciative of everybody who's come here tonight from different places and different distances, but you actually got on a plane today to come here for this, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking so forward to this. Oh, my God. Well, that is uh, a... Yeah, now should we be scared? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, is my rabbit going to wind up in a bucket of water? Or no, good. Okay. I right, need a good, new book good. idea. I mean, if you get killed, Kevin, I will make you sound so good. Oh, that's speaking of, <laughs> speaking of, this is actually a great segue. Just got a little more. Yeah. I just want to say that um, now this is going to sound creepy. Now bring it on. <laughs> Look at the group. Think that you're every other week, by the way. We're going back to weekly. This is our second weekly show coming back. Yeah. Thank you. I just, I, I feel like, God, I wish I was sitting around that table. Just, yeah. not if you want, you can sit in the grab Barca a, lounger here <laughs> on stage. No, seriously, is grab the, a chair. Grab, the, grab a chair. Pull the it fantasy up. fan. The fantasy, the fantasy the fan chair. contest. Grab a chair. Pull it up. She needs to sit in the chair with us at the table. Now, now, Turn around. Now she's just totally regretting having said that. Get on down here and sit at the table with us. Come on. Yeah, a few feet back is good. We don't actually want her at the table. (laughs) Thank you. But uh, building on what you said, Laura, speaking of Kevin's death. um, (laughs) I know. We're waiting for it. Apparently, it's it's big topic. It's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And also, um, because with us tonight is uh, Kelsey, who is the host of DeathCast, which is the other little podcast in Partners in Crime Media, our burgeoning media empire that we run out of a closet in our basement. And on this week's episode of DeathCast, Kelsey answers all of my Death 101 questions about what do I do when I come home from work and Kevin is dead on the floor. I don't know who to call. I don't know what's going to happen next, but Kelsey You better Erickson, call your goddamn lawyer, is what I'm saying, because... <laughs> If I'm dead. But Kelsey answers all those questions, so check out uh, this week's episode of DeathCast in which Kelsey answers all of my Death 101 questions about your corpse, right? Yeah, that's great. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime Crime of of the the Week. A 765-year-old pub in Bolton, England, which is famous for being haunted, claims a Chinese artist has stolen their ghost and they want it back. (laughs) Ye old man in Scythe says its resident ghost is James Stanley, the seventh Earl of Derby. He was beheaded in 1651. All was well until Lu Peng Wan said he captured the ghost in a symbolic act of protest against Great Britain's colonial past. He says he's taken the ghost back to China with him as part of an art exhibit. The theft does not sit well with the pub owners. They want Lou to return their ghost to preserve the, quote, 
natural order of things. Lou says Stanley's ghost says he went willingly, and the ghost promises he will return, but only when he wants to. The loss of the ghost of Earl Stanley should not be such a hardship to ye old man inside, because it turns out the pub is also haunted by 25 other ghosts. So here's my question, and uh, Toby, I'm going to start with you. If you were a judge, how would you mediate a custody agreement between the pub and the artist over the ghost? I, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say that the ghost probably uh, has the right to make up its own mind where it wants to be, and it seems to be with that uh, Chinese artist, so... I would honor its wishes. All right. All right. What about you, Laura? How would you mediate a custody agreement between this uh, English pub and the artist who has stolen its ghost? Well, y'all know how much I love expert witnesses. Yeah. I managed to bring that into every conversation. So I would bring in uh, the expert witness, my friend, the upmarket intuitive Susan, and I would have her maybe do a little fact finding in this case to find out. It's like a custody case. Where does the ghost want to be? This so, is the psychic? Yeah, she's the upmarket intuitive. So she's she, better than a psychic because she's a little more legit. <laughs> she, she'd be like the up ghost. Upmarket? She's upmarket. She's, she's, she's more expensive than your average psychic? Apparently so. No, she so, wears Eileen Fisher clothes instead of like hobo yeah, clothes. Yeah, no, she's uh, she's not like the one where like when I drive downtown and there's like this weird little door with like a tie-dye thing and it's like, you know, $5 palm reading. No, she's more upmarket than she's that. She's an exeter? Yeah. She also goes to San Diego. I mean, she's legit. She's serious. Yeah. And she could be the ghost guardian ad litem. Is that what you're That's saying? That's what I'm trying to say. Like, she could be called in as an expert witness. What would you say, Kevin? How would you uh, mediate this custody agreement? I think it should be pretty standard. I think that the pub should get the ghost every other weekend and uh, for overnights <laughs> twice a week. And uh, Supervised. I think, supervised. <laughs> until the ghost is old enough to make his own decisions when he reaches the he's, age of 500. So. Uh, I think he's like 750 at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> what would you do? You're around the table. Now here's your chance. How would you mediate this dispute? Um, I wasn't listening. <laughs> you, fit, you fit right in. I think you fit into all of our audience, actually, and we should probably wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, how can people find you online if they want to? At Laura Bricker. On Twitter, on right? On Twitter. I'm always on there. Toby, are you on the Twitter? I'm on the Twitter. And if folks want to find you there, how would they do that? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet to you, how can they do that? Do it at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also find me at Reb Lavoy on Instagram. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. Directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, check out my full interview with Laura Lippman. Sign up for our newsletter. Buy stuff using that Amazon link, Mom. And if if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover the podcast. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in front of a live freaking audience at the Hatbox Theater in Concord, New Hampshire. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. So, um, my mic on? Your mic is on. I'm going to turn you up a little bit. Laura, can you just do me a favor and tell me what you had for breakfast this morning? I had the chemical shake. What? I know. I know. What the hell is that? Well, it's been a rough summer of uh, wine and snacks, so I've had to cut back a little with the meal replacement shake for a few weeks, so...
I want to just let you all listen to a special guest who knows a little bit more about this book than we do. Okay, so one thing you may have noticed is that sometimes we make mistakes when making a podcast. That's part of the deal. I will edit them out later. The second thing that you need to know is that you're not going to hear the thing that I just mentioned. What the listeners are going to hear when they hear the final product, the first voice they're going to hear is someone saying, my name is Laura Lippman and I am the author of Wild Lake. That was author Laura Lippman talking with me about her book, Wild Lake. And, and I think it's probably the best interview I've ever heard with Laura <laughs> Lippman ever. Wouldn't you all agree? <laughs> it was amazing. They were riveted to every minute of that. All right, all right, all right. Speaking of being taken out of the story, um, Mom, can you please silence your cell phone? I'm 100% sure that that's yours, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'll cut this out of the podcast. There's a little button on the side. If you just slide it back, it turns all the noises off. I hear like a little like iPhone like ping going on back there. Somebody's um, tweeting us, maybe. I know, maybe somebody's tweeting yeah. about us. But silencing your cell phones would be helpful for my editing later. So feel free to go ahead and, and do that. Um, all right, so Kevin. Uh, That's cold. No, no, no. Cold, no, no, I'm just. I'm, I'll I'm, take. A 70, 60. A 760... I'm sorry. Aren't you glad you're sitting at the table <laughs> now? Interesting. This is what it's really like. Now you know. All right, you guys ready? Aren't, aren't you glad there are parts that you don't get to hear? Yeah. <laughs> you have no this idea. A, this is the good stuff that we cut out. Well, thank you, Owls, so much for coming out and listening to this live taping of Crime Writers On. Come talk to us afterwards, and uh, we might go to a mall-adjacent chain restaurant and uh, hang out for a little bit. Thank you all so much for coming out. We so appreciate it. Lights. We we should take a picture on the bed. I think we should all go on the bed and take a picture. (laughs) It has just the right amount of shape. If you hate feeling like an adult stuck in an adolescent's home, you might appreciate the new Havenly app, the easiest way to decorate your home. Once you've downloaded the app, you'll have access to free home design consultations. And if the consultation inspires you, you can work with a Havenly interior designer to lay out and shop for your dream space in an easy four-step design process. Use code CRIME at checkout and get 20% off your design and furniture purchases.